0: Well, tonight is the third and final presidential debate. And you chose to be here. You you chose wisely, my (laughs) friends. Let's pray. Holy Father, we choose tonight to come here and be before you. We choose to worship. We choose to be immersed in Your Word and by Your Spirit. And we choose, Lord, we choose Jesus. We're all to cast our vote tonight. We vote for Jesus. We vote for His kingdom come. We vote for His authority, His divine and righteous and perfect rule. Father, that's the ballot that we cast here tonight. Lord, I, I just need to tell you I've been so blessed to listen to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount once again. To join with uh, the crowds that had gathered there on that grassy green hillside to listen to the Master Rabbi, Master Teacher, Master Healer, Master of all things, speak the words of truth. And give us the, the manifesto of the Kingdom. Your declaration, Lord Jesus, of of true freedom and independence. And I've just so personally been blessed. I need to praise and thank You for that. Thank You for Your words. Thank You for the great encouragement that You give us. Thank You, Lord, for feeding us continually of the truth. And Father, we seek more of that tonight. Even as Jesus came down off the mountain, we come down following and with Him and falling down before Him and worshiping and wanting the Lord just to be filled up with the person and the presence of Jesus Christ tonight. So Father, by Your Spirit I ask You to fix our eyes on Jesus. Keep our focus right there. May we watch every move, every nuance, every spoken word and be blessed by doing so. And as we look to You, Jesus, we lift You up as a name above all names. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide tonight as we delve deeper into the life of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 8. You can turn your Bibles there. We move on tonight from the Sermon on the Mount. And we move into the place of the miraculous. And this is exciting. We get to see Jesus in action, doing some action-packed things. But before we get there, I, I want to talk just for a moment about the miraculous. <coughs> we use that word a lot in our culture. Miraculous. Or miracle. Was it four babies that were born this weekend to families in our fellowship? I think it was four. Four. Hello! I mean, that's a great increase. Michelle, I hope you're ready, because children's ministry is growing by leaps and bounds. But you know what? Not a single one of those births was a miracle. I'm sorry. They weren't miracles. They weren't miraculous. Oh, I know, to the eyes of the mothers and the fathers in those hospital rooms, it was miraculous, but it's a misapplication of the word. They weren't miracles. They were the natural order that God, by His creative, awesome, amazing power, set into motion. And He created us in such a way that a man and a woman can come together and ultimately the result can be a child. And it's an amazing thing, but it's not its not supernatural. It's not a miracle. It's natural. God created it to happen. Yes, it has the touch of God in it. Yes, God is involved with knitting us together in our mother's womb, but it's not a miracle. It's it's what God said. This is what, how we're going to happen. This is how the species is going to propagate and, and continue and grow. And he put his touch on that. But it's, it's not a miracle. It's wonderful. Not a miracle. I was thinking about one of my favorite northwest spectacles. I've only seen it in a handful of times. The Aurora Borealis. Love seeing the northern light. Some of you know that the song that we sing from time to time, Light in the Window, was inspired by a vision of the aurora borealis when I actually thought Jesus was coming again because I had never seen this before. I would never seen the northern lights and all of a sudden lights are in the sky moving and gyrating and dancing greens and reds and blues and I just went, I'm ready, Lord! I'm ready! No one on my street was ready. They were just standing there looking. Don't you know what's happening here? Yes, the aurora borealis. Right! I know that. I was amazed. It was incredible. Tempted to call it a miracle, but it's not. There's nothing miraculous about it. The northern lights are in fact caused by a molecular collision of charged particles in the Earth's ionosphere. And that's exciting, isn't it? Apparently these particles originate in the sun or with the sun and they're carried along what's called the solar wind until they end up trapped in the Earth's magnetosphere and there... They collide electronically and they excite atoms and molecules and different gaseous compounds of nitrogen and oxygen. And as that happens, it creates the different colors that we see. And they interact with the Earth's inner core, the magnetic core at the center of the Earth, which is what makes them move and, and fluctuate in the sky. And that's not miraculous. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's not miraculous. It's nature. It's nature by God's hands. It's what God created nature to do. Well, if that's not miraculous to you, Rick, the birth of a child is not miraculous to you, Rick, then tell me what is miraculous. Well, let's get a very clear definition of miraculous. Miracles are supernatural intervention into the natural order. That's a miracle. When something supernaturally happens that violates the laws, Jesus walking on water, that's a miracle. Because by the natural order of things, it's impossible. We can't do it, naturally speaking. Jesus did it in the supernatural. Peter did it, supernaturally speaking. It's an invasion of the supernatural into the natural. That is a miracle. You might put it this way. It's divine intrusion into the daily incidental. Divine intrusion into the daily incidental. Now, back in Matthew chapter 4... Long about verse 23. We saw as as the beginning of Jesus' ministry began to flourish and, and explode, as he came onto the scene after after his baptism and after the temptation, and after gathering the first of the disciples, the apostles around him, we're told in verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Those were miracles. Verse 24 says, The news about Him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to Him all who were ill, those suffering various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and He healed them. That's a miracle. Because it's the divine intrusion into the daily incidental. Now tonight, as we come to Matthew chapter 8, as we come down the mountain with Jesus, we're going to see Him launch into a series of the miraculous. Somewhere between 10 and 12 Miracles are are accounted in the next two chapters alone. We paused. We took several weeks, in fact, to look at and listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Five, six, and seven. Three chapters, moving slowly, hanging on every word that Jesus laid out there. And now, almost as if a rocket launching, Jesus takes off and begins to perform miracle after miracle after miracle. And it's stunning. And Matthew does it for a reason. You know, most people... If you ask them to give you three things that they know about Jesus, three things that Jesus did, most people, believers and non-believers alike, will probably at some point mention miracles. He's known for doing these great miracles. Now, sadly, there are Bible commentary writers who try to explain away all the miracles, or try to give natural reason for them. Which is why I start out by saying there was nothing natural about the miracles of Jesus Christ. They were supernatural. Now, someone might say, well, Rick, how can you as a thinking man, how can you believe in the miracles of Jesus? Well, here's the thing. Once I believe in Jesus, the miracles are easy. Once I accept Jesus for who He is, I don't have any problem explaining the miracles because they're supernatural. Jesus is the issue. Jesus is where we have to begin. He's where we start. I, I love what Les said earlier this morning in a meeting we had. He said the Gospel is not about Jesus. The Gospel is Jesus. There's a big difference there. If you think the Gospel is about Jesus, you're going to spend years and years spinning your wheels trying to study to get the Gospel down so you can spew it back out. But if you believe, if you understand that the Gospel is Jesus, then rather than spend all that time memorizing, you're going to spend that time in relationship, which is really what Jesus has been driving at. We talked about it Sunday. We're seeing it throughout His teaching get to know me, walk with me, be with me. Jesus was and is in and of himself miraculous. Now, he didn't come to perform perform miracles. That's not why he burst on the scene. He wasn't interested in wowing crowds or impressing people. He came to seek and to save the lost. He said this numerous times. And that's the gospel, our primary message. Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. So why then, you might ask, did Jesus perform any miracles at all? Why take the time to perform these miracles if He didn't come to perform miracles? I want to give you two reasons before we go on tonight. Number one, Jesus' miracles authenticated His authority. The miracles authenticated His authority. We go from His proclamation on the mountain now to the verification of His right to say what He just said. Now, Jesus isn't doing that. Jesus isn't now trying to prove Himself. You know, like an elected official going into office now having to try and keep His word, which none of them do very well. This is not what Jesus is about. Jesus is just being Jesus. But Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing his Gospel, is presenting a case. He is making a case for the king. He is saying, this Jesus is the king. And here's what he says about his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. And now following that, Matthew lays out these miracles. And by the way, they're not necessarily even in chronological order. Chapters 8 and 9 are a series of miracles. And you might see them in different order depending on the gospel you're reading. And that's simply because the different writers are making a different point. Or maybe are looking at Jesus from a different angle. Matthew here is saying I want you to understand the man who just spoke of the kingdom is the king and here's how we can prove it. Look at what he did. And by the way, when Matthew wrote his gospel, most of the people alive through the life of Jesus and there at the beginning of his ministry and experiencing these miracles were still around. So when Matthew wrote this, he could hand it out and say, verify it for yourself. These things happened and you all know they happened. Those of you living in the Galilee, you you followed Him around. You saw. You saw the blind seeing. You saw deaf people who you knew were deaf suddenly could hear. You saw people raised back to life. Verification that Jesus Christ was and is who He said He was and is. And so the miracles authenticate His authority. It's one thing to declare the manifesto of the kingdom. It's quite another to manifest the authority of the king. It's one thing to express a credo. It's yet another to provide credentials. I wish we had more of that in our current presidential race. Less mudslinging and more credentials. Who's up to the challenge? Who has the track record? Who can prove where they're coming from? Am I speaking one side against the other? No, I'm just saying. Look at the credentials. Jesus has them. He had every right to say what He said because of who He is. He is. And that's what Matthew's up to again now as we go into chapter 8. He profoundly shows Jesus declaring the principles of the kingdom for his followers. And now, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew records these several miracles to back up the messianic claims. We're going to see two things, two different kinds of miracles among all these that are listed. Number one, we're going to see Jesus' supernatural control over the natural world that He can heal various diseases and and illnesses, even to the point that He can calm natural storms. He's got that kind of control. But secondly, we're going to see Jesus' supernatural authority over the spiritual world as well. That's where the casting out of demons comes in. Because the demons are in a supernatural environment, and He can deal with them as well. He shows His power, His authority. He is authenticated as the Messiah. Because He can handle all of these things. But there's something else we see in the miracles of Jesus. Not only do they authenticate His authority, but the divinity of Jesus wasn't just in the display of supernatural power. We see the divinity of Jesus. We see that he He is completely other. That He is absolutely different in the way He handled people. And this is probably the thing that we like most about Jesus is the way He interacts with people. Because with almost every interaction, we can thrust ourselves into those sandals. We can wear that robe. We can be there as the person that Jesus is touching and reaching out to. What I'm saying is Jesus' miracles conveyed His compassion. They conveyed His compassion. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And this is what made Jesus so different. I believe part of the reason Jesus did all the miracles was because He couldn't help Himself. Because that's how big His heart was. It was difficult for Jesus to walk by a leper and not touch him. It was almost impossible for Jesus to look into the blinded eyes of someone who had never seen without touching those eyes and bringing about vision. Because Jesus was so full of compassion. The Bible tells us God is love. The Bible tells us Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is love. And when you put love in skin and bones and have Him walk around on the face of the earth, love is what you're going to see. And so Jesus' miracles authenticate His authority and they convey His compassion. He never will work a miracle to excite the crowd. Satan tried to get him to do that on the temple. Jump off. Have a big display. That's not what he was about. In fact, most of the time, Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this. I've done this for you, but keep this between you and me. Let's let's keep it hush-hush. You'll never see Jesus using a miracle to produce a strategic advertising effect. And the very first miracle that we see Jesus perform following the Sermon on the Mount, actually the first one that Matthew fully describes for us in his Gospel... He mentioned that Jesus did miracles before. This is the first time He tells us here is one of them. And here's what it looks like. This reveals nothing less than the divine love of God. Watch it happen. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed Him, and a leper came to Him and bowed down before Him and said, Lord, if You are willing, You can make me clean big difference between the crowds and the leper. The crowds were following Jesus. The leper is worshiping Jesus. The crowds are curious about this rabbi. The leper is called to this Lord. First word out of the leper's mouth. Lord. First thing the leper does before he even speaks is fall down in worship. And by the way, it was blasphemous to worship anybody but God. Jesus knew that. And yet Jesus didn't stop the leper from bowing down before Him. Why? Because, well, you know what's implied here. Because when God walks around in the flesh, it's okay to worship God in the flesh. So this leper bows down and he's worshiping. You know, you can follow Jesus like the crowd for a lot of different reasons. You can follow Jesus because you like the church, the social activities and hanging out with people. That's kind of cool. You can follow Jesus because you like the benefits. Maybe you appreciate the moral compass or you dig the worship music. You follow Jesus for all kinds of reasons. You can only worship Jesus for one reason. And that's because He's Lord. Because He's Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Paul says, No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so this leper is acknowledging the kingdom authority of Jesus. Lord, if You are willing, You can make me clean. Now, something to understand about this man's leprosy. His leprosy and today's leprosy are two different things. The leprosy that you hear talked about or, or may hear about here in the United States specifically today is actually called Hansen's disease. And Hansen's disease or myobacteria leprae is quite treatable. If it's caught early enough, you can stop the, the movement of that kind of leprosy. It's very different than the leprosy of Jesus' day, which was incurable and had a devastating, isolating impact on the victim. As a matter of fact, let me, let me read this to you. In the late 1800s, a missionary by the name of William Thompson wrote a book. After having traveled to Israel, the book's called The Land and Palestine. And he wrote the following. He said, as I was approaching Jerusalem, I was startled by the sudden apparition of a crowd of beggars. No eyes, no noses, sans hair, sans everything. They held up their handless arms, unearthly sounds gurgled through throats without palates. In a word, he writes, I was horrified. Later, Thompson described the advance of this disease, saying, it comes on by degrees in different parts of the body. The hair falls from the head and the eyebrows. The nails loosen, decay, and drop off. Joint after joint of the fingers and toes shrink up and slowly fall off. The gums are absorbed, the teeth disappear, the nose, the eyes, and the tongue and the palate are slowly consumed in the face and finally the wretched victim sinks into the earth and disappears and this process of leprosy in the day of Jesus normally took about nine years to complete its devastating impact nine years finding out that you have leprosy and now now you're untouchable now you're unclean you're outcast and you will spend the next years nine years of your life going from bad to worse with no hope no compassion and look at what Jesus does Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Before he healed him, not after. The man who had not been touched for who knows how long, who had not had physical human contact for however many months or possibly years, the first thing Jesus gives him is touch. Compassion. This conveys that, that incredible love of the Father's heart that is embedded in the person of Jesus Christ his compassion pours out. He stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. Now, I don't know how bad it was, but if there were fingers missing, immediately they were back. If there was a nose not there, immediately it was seen again. Eyes disappearing, pop, pop, they're back. I mean, it just must have been an amazing thing. Well instantaneously at the touch of Jesus. Do you think those coming down the mountain might have stopped and gone, maybe he had the right to say what he just said. There's something amazing about this man. Now we previously looked at, back when we studied Leviticus, we looked at the ceremonial regulations regarding regarding leprosy in Leviticus 13 and 14. The Lord set those forth. For anyone who got leprosy, or if, if, if it would happen, that these are the things that you're supposed to do. And it specifically tells how leprosy in the Bible is a graphic and illustrative type of sin. In fact, there are some verses to back that up. Psalm 38, verse 3 says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Verse 5 of Psalm 38, My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. Verse 7 of Psalm 38, My loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. Psalm 38 verse 18 says, For I confess my iniquity and I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Leprosy is just a picture of sin. It does the same type of thing. Leprosy on a physical level, sin on a spiritual level. Because leprosy, what you see on the outside, by the time the fingers begin to curl up and drop off, the leprosy is rampant throughout the body. It's an unseen enemy that begins deep inside and works its way out. And when you see the results of it, you're already in very bad shape. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6 says, From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, wealth, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Leprosy is a picture for us of sin and the devastating consequences of sin, because like leprosy, sin is the outward witness of the inward problem. Now Ironside said this, and it's something I think we all can relate to. Ironside wrote, One is not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he is a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I am a sinner. And I believe the Lord would invite us to pause tonight and take a moment on that statement, especially if you're in the place where someone has sinned against you. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I am a sinner. We talked last week about judgment. It is a lot harder to be judgmental when we can recognize our own sin and the depth of our sin in our lives. I have a whole lot more compassion and grace for other people when I'm standing in naked acceptance of the fact that I am a leprous sinner. But that's my nature. The fact that I don't sin more is the miracle. The fact that the Holy Spirit has come in and and washed me out is absolutely supernatural. But left to my own nature, I'm going to sin because I am a sinner. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man out of the heart. By the way, it's interesting to note that had Israel been right with God, had they trusted the Lord, had they clung to Him truly as their Father, there would have been no illness in the land of Israel. Exodus 15.26 says, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I the Lord am your healer. If you will be righteous before before me, the Lord says, you're not going to get sick. You're not going to have that problem. Every sick person, everyone that came up before Jesus, blind, deaf, dumb, leprosy, Epileptics, And even those possessed, every single one who came before Him was testimony in Judea and Samaria to the fallen nature of the favored nation. Because it shouldn't have been that way. Had the people simply followed the Lord, there would never have been leprosy in the land. There was leprosy in the land because the people chose to sin. It's interesting, Jesus the healer immediately calls for this man to follow the Levitical law which is written for just such an occasion. Verse 4, he said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. A couple things to note. One, that Jesus is just getting the word to the inside. He wants the priests to recognize something that they had not seen well ever in the history of Israel, save one time. Well, let me show you this. Leviticus chapter 14 if you want to flip back there, it's the third book, Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 14. In verse 1, your Bible might have the same heading that mine has, the law of cleansing a leper. Which is a little misleading, and it's misleading in the Bible simply because man stuck it in there. It wasn't in the original text. But it says, law of cleansing a leper. Listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look. And if the infection of the leprosy has been healed in the leper, then... Okay, stop right there. Note that this law is not for cleansing a leper. This is the law for a leper who has been cleansed. So if a leper is outside the camp as prescribed by law, untouchable, unclean, And suddenly, the leprosy is gone. Well, then the priest is supposed to go outside the camp and follow through with this ceremonial ritual. Watch this. If, again, the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. Why those things? Well, you've got to go back and listen to the study on Leviticus 14 and you'll find out. It's a picture of the cross. It's amazing. Verse 5. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running or literally over living water. Which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Not going to get into that. Go back and listen to the teaching. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean. Now remember, this guy's already healed. So the cleansing now is a spiritual cleansing, not a physical one. Because suddenly this leper outside the camp is amazingly miraculously healed. He says, He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who has who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. Verse 7. Verse 8. The one to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, bathe in water, and be clean. Afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. It will be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all his hair. He shall shave his head and his beard and his eyebrows... <laughs> even all his hair, and he shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and be clean. Now, verse 10, on the eighth day, he is to take two male lambs without defect and a yearling ewe lamb without defect and three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil, or one pint of oil. All this stuff is for the ceremonial offering, the ceremonial cleansing of the leper. But it's not for the healing of the leper because that's already happened. This is a law for a cured leper. One time in the entire history of Israel did a person ever have leprosy and then find themselves healed making this law effective. And that one person was Miriam. Numbers chapter 12, verses 10-15, through the story where Miriam and Aaron are speaking against Moses. They're undermining him. They're slandering him. And God confronts them about it. Miriam, Aaron, Moses... All three of you, out of the pool and in front of me right now. And he gets on the two, and instantaneously Miriam gets leprosy. Now the Lord heals her of it, and she has to stay outside the camp for seven days. But because that happened, since the law is given, then Miriam would have to go through this ceremonial cleansing and ritual cleansing that the Lord prescribed. With that single exception, 1,500 years will go by between this Levitical law and Jesus showing up on the scene. And this law would be seemingly unnecessary, unused, and likely forgotten until now when this cured leper goes to the priest and says, I've I got to do what the law says. And they're going, what does the law say? I don't know. We haven't used this in like a long time. 1,500 years, no use. It's one of those things you look in the Bible and you say, well, Lord, why'd you put that there? Who's going to need it? I'll tell you who would need it. The leper who approaches Jesus when he comes down the mountain. And God knew that. And I just that blows my mind. That God in His sovereign grace looked ahead and said, this guy's going to need this law. This guy's going to need a way to be sanctified and return to the fellowship of Israel when I have touched him and healed him of his leprosy. The Lord not only heals the sinner, but He sanctifies the healed sinner. In the same way that not only did Jesus heal the leper, but God provided that now He could be sanctified and renewed and restored to fellowship, He does the same thing for you and me. First He heals the sinner, and then He provides a way through His Holy Spirit to be brought into fellowship in the body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body... There's the triad, by the way, the the trinity of the human life that we've talked about recently, spirit, soul, and, and the body, the flesh. Well, here it is. May... Your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. Again, once we are healed of our sin before God, we enter into the sanctification process. And day by day we are being sanctified, renewed. Oh, we're cleansed, we're saved, we're sealed by the Spirit for our salvation. But every day that I am alive is one more day of sanctification before the Lord. See, He provides for both the healing and the restoration, the sanctification. So Jesus does this. We don't know what this uh, what this leper does. We do know actually from from other Gospels that He went out and told everybody about it. So we didn't really pay attention when Jesus said, "Tell no one." Of course, it kind of be hard not to tell people. You know, hey uh, Bob, how was your weekend? Pretty good. Got cured of leprosy. <laughs> How do you not share that? You know? And so, we know he probably ended up and went to the priest and went through the cleansing he was supposed to, but we also know, again, from the other Gospel writers that he told everyone. Well, Jesus entered Capernaum. Capernaum there on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes back into Capernaum, verse 5, and a centurion came to him imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented, and Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. I really like that. Say the word. Just, just say the word. I don't need flash. I don't, need amazed, I don't even need you to come with me. I just need you to say the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. Matthew, remember, in reporting these miracles, Matthew is making the case for the king. And Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 4 tells us where the word of a king is, there is power. And this, uh, this centurion obviously understands the chain of command. Where a word of the king is, there is power. So just say the word, because I believe you're the king. I have faith in you, Jesus. Say the word. He'll be healed. You don't even have to come. You don't even have to touch Him. Say the word. The centurion understood this this chain of command. Verse 9, he said, I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, He marveled. Note that, he marveled. He only marvels twice in all the Gospels. Jesus marveled and said to those who are following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now if you read the same story in the Gospel of Luke, you find out this centurion was a highly honorable man. You discover this centurion loved the Jewish people and he had even overseen the building of a synagogue for them or even possibly built it himself with his own funds. It's it's unclear. But he was very much a lover and a supporter of the Jewish people, not like many of the Romans who were just lording it over them. This was a good, honorable man. But it wasn't for honor, and it wasn't for loyalty that Jesus marveled. It was for faith. He was just, wow! And he looks around. This guy's got faith. I haven't seen this kind of faith, which is amazing because he's a Gentile. I mean, that's a slap in the face. I don't think Jesus meant it as a backhanded slap, but, but for all the Jews standing around, He's saying, here's an example of faith for you, and He's not even a Jew. Jesus marveled. The other time Jesus marveled in the Gospels is Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And there, He marveled at the great lack of faith of His hometown Nazareth. Jesus marvels at faith. Jesus loves faith. When we step out, we were talking again this morning, um, had a great conversation this morning, but we were talking just about the idea that, that the Lord loves when we take the step. You know, we wait on the Lord. We wait for his leading. We wait to hear his indication of what he wants us to do, but he loves when we will take a step. Lord, I, I think you're telling me to do this. I'm going to try it out. Yeah, I, I think that's still you. I'm going to try again. And when we continue to move forward in faith, Jesus marvels at that. By the way, it's clear that in this Roman, Jesus saw the coming Gentile harvest. Listen to what He says. Verse 11, I say to you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that is, Jewish people, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're going to come from the east and from the west. East and west of what? East and west of Israel. People are going to flow in from the east of Israel. Oh, well, those are Gentiles over there. They're going to come from the west of Israel. Oh, those are Gentiles over there. And they're going to come and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to be seated in places of honor in the kingdom of heaven. But Jewish people mark this. Many of you, because of your lack of faith, are going to be cast out. And Jesus uses these two phrases, weeping and gnashing of teeth. He uses that a lot. And by the way, it indicates two separate occurrences here. The weeping, the weeping is that whole sense of, of what is going to happen to them. The weeping is that everlasting grief over being lost. The gnashing of teeth speaks of unrepentant bitterness. In other words, these people are going to be cast out and they're going to weep in sorrow because they were cast out. But you ask anyone, I shared this in the Revelation study, if we were able to open up hell after a hundred years and look inside and see if there was anyone repentant there, you wouldn't find a one. They would still be gnashing their teeth. How dare you send me down here? This is not fair. I don't deserve to be here. That's where the place of sin takes you. People who say, well, it's not fair that someone would be there for all eternity. But that's where they would be stuck, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But as for the Gentile harvest, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 says it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills and the nations, the nations, Gentiles, will stream into it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their plow their swords into ploughshares and their spears into pruning hooks and their yellow cake into cupcakes. I added that last part. It's not actually in there. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. From the nations, Jesus calls that there's going to be a Gentile harvest. Replacing Israel? No. No. Not instead of. Because of the Jewish rebellion, the harvest goes out to the Gentiles. But because the harvest goes out to the Gentiles, remember Paul writes this in Romans 11? The Jewish people will become jealous and will find their way back to salvation. At least a remnant will be saved. Verse 14 going on. Well, when Jesus came into Peter's home, which by the way, you can see the remnants of it in Capernaum, if you go on the Israel trip with us in March, you can see Capernaum. It's one of my favorite stops on the tour. It's the coolest place. A little seaside town. It's the, it's the ruins of what's left there. The synagogue still stands. You can see the synagogue into which Jesus walked and began to teach. There in Capernaum. And you can see what they think is Peter's house, although Catholic Church has come along and put what looks like a spaceship over the top of it. Perfect. So it's an interesting. How they know that this particular one is Peter's house, I'm not sure. But Jesus went there. There in Capernaum, he comes into Peter's home, and he saw his mother in law, note that, lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. We're now to the third miracle that we've seen. A leper, a centurion, and now Peter's mother-in-law. Yes, Peter was married, which disqualifies him as a pope. None of the popes are supposed to be married. Peter was. The Bible tells us very clearly he had a mother-in-law. Why would you have a mother-in-law if you weren't married? Who would want to have a mother-in-law? If you didn't have the buffer zone of your... I love my mother-in-law. I couldn't say those things out loud if I didn't love Sharon dearly. (laughs) Quickly, moving on. So Jesus... (laughs) Jesus is so powerful, and I love this about Him. The disease, the fever that is in Peter's mother-in-law, it flees. He doesn't even say a word here. He just touches her hand. She's well. Of course, it's not a big surprise after we saw the leper healed, but still, it's amazing. disease flees away from the presence of Jesus Christ. Disease doesn't last long when Jesus is nearby. The fever flees. Think about this, though, three healings. A leper, a Gentile, and a woman. And these are the first three that Matthew points out for us. Back in the first century, there's an ancient rabbinical prayer that used to be prayed by many of the rabbis and Jewish leaders. "'Lord, I thank You that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman.'" As a matter of fact, so distinct was the attitude of men toward women and, and the lower place of women in that culture that you could be at a home of a friend waiting for a baby to be born, presents in hand, ready to go. The baby's born, and they find out the child is a girl, and you would, by culture, pick up your presents and go home, and you wouldn't stay and celebrate and rejoice. That's a little harsh, but that was the attitude. Jesus' attitude toward women was absolutely radical in the day. was as liberal as it gets in Israel of the day. He honored women, and it's amazing that these first three, a leper outcast by the law, a Gentile who's an outsider of the commonwealth of Israel, and a woman, Peter's mother-in-law, who was a lower-class citizen in Israel, who is Jesus choosing to heal here? The people who need it most. The people who need to be drawn up and elevated as important according to Jesus. Jesus was born into the world for such as these. By the way, did you see what Peter's mother-in-law did as soon as she was healed? She immediately got up and waited on him. And that's what happens. When you're healed by the Lord, whether it's a spiritual healing, your sins washed away, your, your sins forgiven, your life cleansed before the Lord, or a physical healing suddenly what might be drudgery before becomes a joy. Doing the dishes, preparing the food, getting dinner on the table might be a drag, but when Jesus heals, suddenly you want to serve. A heart of service, game is the natural result when the fever of sin is lifted from our lives. Verse 16, When evening came, they brought to Him many who were demon-possessed, and He cast out the spirits with a word. And He healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill, Matthew said. He's pointing this out. Listen, I'm I'm making a case here. We're authenticating His authority. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Quote, He Himself took away our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Matthew inserts Isaiah 53 verse 4 right there. Saying this is prophetic proof of the person of the King. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53 goes on and says, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastened for our... the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging or by His stripes we are healed. I love how Matthew will insert a verse that might be familiar to the Jewish people. Isaiah 53, verse 4. And so someone reading Matthew's Gospel trying to figure out this person Jesus after the fact you know, after the resurrection Jesus has ascended and they're reading the gospel and thinking through it and they come to this verse he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases yeah and I did see Jesus healed I wonder what the context is of that and they open the scroll of Isaiah and they find Isaiah 53 which the very next verse describes the crucifixion of Jesus it's wonderful it's great authorship the Holy Spirit has a fantastic pen Because by the time now we get to the end of Matthew and we see the crucifixion, the person reading this already has that in mind that Isaiah said, this one is going to be pierced through for our transgressions. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. By His scourging we are healed. Now, you might say, well, if by His stripes or His scourging we are healed, why is there still sickness? Why is there still disease? Why is there still death? Very simply because there is still sin. And as long as there is sin in the world, there is decay. There are those who teach, it's God's will, that all of His faithful children should never be diseased, should be able to overcome all disease. And I disagree with that. Now, please hear me on this. I believe in healing. I believe in miraculous, instantaneous healing. I have seen it happen I have prayed for people and seen them healed. I believe in it. But I don't believe that it's God's will that every single one of us instantaneously be healed. If it was, none of us would die. Because death is the ultimate end of sin. And and the death would be ended. And, and we wouldn't experience it at all. What I'm saying is that my, my spirit is healed and sealed for eternity, absolutely. But as Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 4.16... We do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. No matter how hard you pray, you cannot stop the tick, tick, tick of decay in your life. Bummer. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty depressing. We were talking about dieting earlier. And uh, and I mentioned that Cheryl had bought me some healthy choice you know, stick them in the oven, eat them meals, and they're good, the smaller portions. That's the problem, is by the time i finish finished a healthy choice meal, I still need some pizza and a couple of cupcakes, and then I'm better. You know, then. I, but at least I feel like like I'm dieting. I'm, I'm in a different place now than I was 10 years ago. My body is doing different things. My metabolism is changing, and now what I ate then, you know, I've, I've put on probably 10 pounds in the last five years, and it's just my metabolism. I haven't changed my behavior at all. Michelle tells me I need to start working out, and I think... Now that's going to (laughs) happen. Christian, I need your help, man. Just help me work out. Sorry, where was I? Lost in this stuff. Oh, okay. So this is why Paul wrote about the whole concept of healing. The truth is we are in bodies that are decaying. That's the reality. There's sin in the world. Because there's sin in the world, there is corruption. And it's not just humanity, gang. It's the whole world that is groaning in decay. Paul says in Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. So we know what life is. We We have tasted eternity with the Holy Spirit of God. But we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope... In hope, he says, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. We don't hope for what we've seen. We hope for what we hope will happen. And he says, who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And so while we pray for healing, and we seek and ask for healing, among our body when people are sick or diseased or infirm we also recognize the perfect will of our Father and we know, we know that we're still decaying. Let me put one more final word on this. It would be great to raise someone from the dead from a human perspective, wouldn't it? To have someone who passed away, maybe among the bridge fellowship, and to see them raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, but it would not be a wonderful thing for the person raised from the dead. They're better off with Jesus. I had one friend just last week make the comment, and I I thought this was profound. Maybe Jesus wept before raising Lazarus because He knew what He was pulling Lazarus away from. Because He realized Lazarus was coming back into a decaying world and would die a second time. So while we want to see, and, and we ask for God to be glorified in healing, and we pray for each other, and we absolutely mean it, We also pray the will of the Father, knowing that until Jesus comes again, decay is just a reality in this world. Now, in between all of this healing, Rabbi Yeshua is still teaching. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around Him, He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. You might want to mark that and just tuck that away. Jesus gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. This was His intention. Well, then a scribe came and said to Him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Great, Matthew, get the pen, sign him up, let's go. It would be wonderful to have this scribe on board. I mean, that will lend some credibility to what we're doing here. Oh no, it says, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What kind of an answer is this? I mean, Jesus has just been offered by a scribe, a higher up. A scribe no less offers to help and be part of your ministry, Jesus, and you turn him off with a claim to homelessness? You you paint kind of a a bad picture. You come with me, you'll be lucky if you have a stone for a pillow tonight, because we're sleeping out under the stars. I'll tell you one thing, Jesus' answer stands in stark contrast with America's Christian commercialism. At this point early in Jesus' ministry, when a scribe would be just the thing to lend credibility to his ministry, someone could say, Scribe Moshe's on the team. Man, I can follow that guy. He's got some support. He's got some people signing off on him. Why is it that so many of our Christian books are filled on the the and the, and the front cover and back cover are filled with tributes and testimonials from big-name people that we all recognize in the church? Why do they do that? Because they're selling books. Because they want me to look and go, Oh, Michael W. Smith really liked this book. I've got to buy that. Who cares if Michael W. Smith likes it? Now, if it's a piano concerto, maybe I want him to sign off on that. Stephen Curtis Chapman thought this was fantastic. This professor said this, or, or this writer, or this author said that. And we have these. And the point I'm making, gang... It's all about trying to sell something. And Jesus was not into selling His ministry. He didn't need help. He didn't need credibility from anybody else. All of Jesus' credibility to do what He did and to to perform what He performed was in Him. It was because of who He was. 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul said, We are not like many, peddling the Word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God you see we're not about selling Christianity we don't have to people say how are we going to how are we going to go head to head with the Muslims and how about all these weird faces that are popping up all over America how do we go head to head how do we fight that to really sell the kingdom we don't we don't have to sell it because again the gospel is Jesus and so as we love him and as we proclaim Jesus that's all people need so Jesus, I believe, is saying clearly to this guy, don't sign on to my team if you're looking for the creature comforts of this world, if you're looking to, you know, make this thing more credible, count the cost. If you follow me, and we don't know what the scribe did, he very well may have followed Jesus from that day forward. So I'm not impugning his his position at all. But Jesus is saying, if you follow me, it's gonna cost you everything. You gotta leave it behind. You cannot bring it with you. And as if to shore that up even more, it says another of the disciples, notice one of the disciples, it's someone who was following Jesus. He said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, if we said that in American culture today, that would be a little rude. Hey, did you want to go get a coffee on Saturday? Well, i got a funeral to go to. Ah, let the dead bury their own dead. Come on with me. I mean, I've read this before, and I look at that and, on the surface say, that's some harsh words. What is Jesus really saying here? Well, you need to understand, it's not a callous statement. Because Jesus is responding to a customary saying, even today, a saying that is used in the Arab world around in the Middle East, a saying that's been continued to use, the saying is, I need to bury my father. I must first bury my father. And a person in the Middle East would say that even if their father was alive. Because what it meant, what it meant was, I have responsibilities at home until my father passes away, i got to take care of that. But, when he dies, I'll have the inheritance, I'll have the freedom, I'll have the resources, and I can follow you, Jesus. That's what this man is saying. It was a very common thing to say. i got to bury my father first. After he dies, could be years. But when he dies then I can come back and I got money and I got opportunity and I have the time and I can follow you then what did Jesus say just before that on the mount verse 33 he said seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you you don't go home and wait for dad to pass away so you can get your inheritance you come now for Jesus it was all or nothing and my friends it's all or nothing today nothing has changed with Jesus it is still an all or nothing proposition. Give me everything that you have, everything that you are, come follow me. Count the cost. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. What does that mean? I think what he's saying is the spiritually dead can take care of the physically dead. Let those who are dead spiritually take care of those who are dead physically. If you're spiritually alive, your focus is the kingdom, not the things of this world. Would you all agree with me that the things of this world are the very thing that take my eyes off the kingdom? When I'm worried about worldly stuff, that's when I stop looking at the kingdom. This, you know this, this world is passing away. Everything evil, everything sinful, everything bad about it, everything that stresses us out, every worry we have ever had, it is passing away. It is the short term, it's temporary. And in light of eternity and grace and forever with Jesus, no matter what is happening in your life here, it's nothing compared to the kingdom, which is everything. And if we could wrap our hearts around that truth, it it would change us, radically alter us from this point on. Colossians 2.13 tells us, when you were dead, when you were dead, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Not when I said I'm sorry. Not when I repented. Not when I owned up. When I was dead, He died for me. When I was dead, Paul says, He raised me up and made me alive. Paul would write in another place, Ephesians 5.14, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. By the way, one last thing on this family deal. Father, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. God wants to bury His Father. Anyone here ever hesitated to follow Jesus because of a dead relative? I mean, think about that. I have had conversations with people who say, you know what, Uncle Albert wasn't a Christian. And for me to believe what you're saying would condemn him, so I cannot believe what you're saying. And the truth is, gang, Darwin, Darwin was at least one time Catholic. And he left his faith, and his reason for leaving his faith is he said his father and his brother died without faith, so how could he condemn them by believing in God? And so we have evolution today in our schools. Thank you very much, Darwin. All because He would not let the dead bury their own dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow the Son. A commitment to Jesus Christ is always, first, intensely personal. It's between you and the Lord. What happens in your family, what's happening with friends, you know what? Not to sound callous, but that has to be secondary. You've got to deal first with you and the Lord. So if you're ever talking to someone about Jesus, and they turn and they say, Ah, you know, I'm just not sure I can follow Jesus because, you know, so and so... My mom passed away and she didn't know the Lord. And I just don't know what that would say about her. Your answer is, you deal one-on-one with Jesus and let Jesus handle your mother. Let Jesus deal with everything else. That's not your concern. Your concern is you and the Lord. It's amazing that by not choosing Jesus, we somehow would make that right. Right? Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow the Son. Verse 23. Verse 23, is that where we are? Yeah. Now, when He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus Himself was asleep. The Sea of Galilee, Lake Caneret, rests about 680 feet below sea level. What's interesting is because of its basin-like position, surrounded on all sides by high hills, it boasts some pretty radical storms. That sea, and when you look across it, it's actually smaller than you might think. The Sea of Galilee, Lake Canera, really is just a large lake. Maybe the size of some of the Great Lakes, not even as big as some of the Great Lakes. But if you stand and you look out, it it has this this mountainous surrounding almost all the way around it, except in, in one point. On the eastern side of the sea, the mountains called Gadara or the Gadarenes which is the last part of of this chapter they rise sharply and they serve kind of as a wall against the weather have you noticed oftentimes that the islands are sunny but Mount Vernon is rainy because the mountains there, Mount Vernon kind of hold the rain, it passes us and gets stuck there I feel really bad anyone here from Mount Vernon? Okay, then we can kind of laugh about that (laughs) a little bit but you can look over there and you can see rain and darkness and dreariness and the sun's shining and happy over the islands Well, that's what the Gadarenes did. The mountains of Gadara rose high. And so what would happen is the weather systems come from the western side through a passageway, a mountain passageway, all the way off the Mediterranean. Wild storms from the Mediterranean would come blowing across the land, and they would go into this passageway that's that's called the Horns of Hattin. And the Horns of Hattin are mountains on the western side that they basically make a funnel and that storm system goes whipping into the funnel and intensifies its velocity and hits the sea of Galilee and it can be like that. And so fishermen back in Jesus' day they'd be out on the sea it could be a sunny day and within minutes before they could row halfway back to shore within minutes the tempest was wild and the sky was was dark and the rain was just pouring down the velocity intense. And it tells us they went out there and there arose a great storm on the sea. And even with that piece of information about the natural of what's going on, I have to ask, is it possible there was something supernatural at work here that there was another reason for the storm on the sea Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air which indicates that Satan has some power. Over storm systems, possibly. Over the elements. And it makes sense that Jesus, after declaring the kingdom, and beginning to heal people, and His ministry is gathering a following, and there's greatness here, gang. And Satan couldn't take Him down in the temptations. And Satan couldn't take Him down back when He was born. And He had all the... the Herod go after Him, and all the infant boys under two were murdered. And so now they're out on the boat. Easy target blow through the horns of a teen and wipe out Jesus and all his guys. Take them down right here. Satan, I'm sure, was still prowling around. Luke tells us that he was looking for an opportunity. He left Jesus until such a time as he could come back at Him again. Whether in temptation or an attack, Satan had to take this Jesus down. So whether it was a natural storm or not, we don't know. I have a feeling Satan was involved here. But I love this. Jesus was asleep. <laughs> Just having a nap. And these were not big boats with nice, comfortable berths and pillows down in the hold. If you've seen those of you who went to Israel and, and if by the way, if you go to Israel with us, you will see <laughs> you'll see what they call the Jesus boat, which is a boat that they actually pulled up out of the mud of the Sea of Galilee and preserved it. It's a 2,000-year-old fishing boat, probably just like the one Jesus was on right here. Not very big, maybe 27 feet, 27 to 30 feet in length. Wide open boat they would fish off of, and Jesus is just in the crease there of the boat. And the boat is rocking and flopping and flipping all over the place, and the waves are crashing. The Bible says, over, covered with the waves, which means water is coming across and down on them, and Jesus is sound asleep. It's a marvelous scene. The storm is raging while the Savior is resting. And that is what happens in life. And we're just like the disciples, the apostles. We're screaming, Lord, the storm, the storm! My life is too much. The waves have be covered. Help, Lord! And He's just resting. And He is in perfect peace. Remember that the next time storms of doubt and waves of fear begin to rise in your life, or maybe if the storm is raging right now in your life, while the storm is raging, the Savior is resting. Watch what He does. Verse 25, They came to Him and woke Him, saying, Save us Lord, we're perishing! And He said to them, Why are you afraid? You men of little faith? And then He got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey Him? And I want to point out, and the sea. Because it would be one amazing miracle for Jesus to say, hush, which is the word He uses in Luke, hush, be still. And for the wind to stop, that would blow my mind. But the sea... was as still as glass. Immediately, even if you stop the storm, the waves would take a minute to settle down. The debris floating out on the Sea of Galilee would take a moment before it began to sink and settle. But not when Jesus speaks a word, "Hush," and the wind and the waves perfectly calm. No wonder the disciples went, "Who is this guy? We've seen him heal a leper." We've seen him heal Peter's mom-in-law. We've seen him do these things. The centurion servant, well, we heard that he was healed. We never really saw that. This is a different thing entirely. Now it's not just physical healing, but it's power, it's authority over the natural world. Incredible. And Jesus' response is wonderful. First, first he rebukes them for their lack of faith. (laughs) And the storm's still going on. They say save us and my inclination would be to jump up right then and go hush and then to talk to the apostles. Jesus does it the other way around. While the boat's still rocking, He's like, what are you guys worried about? (laughs) What's the problem? Don't you believe I can take care of this? And then He calms the sea. What's the lesson here? Gang, faith and fear cannot coexist. It's going to be one or the other. When you have faith, there is no fear. And when you have fear, faith flees away. But the Lord has not left us alone to develop our faith. He has not left us in the place of fear. Isaiah 41, verse 10, He says, "...Do not fear, I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with My righteous right hand." And let me remind you of something. What was it that Jesus told the disciples before they shoved off? If you look back in verse 18, it tells us that He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So we know before they even got in the boat, Jesus' intention was that they were going to get to the other side. I think sometimes we forget the sheer power, the inertia... Of God's will when he says here's where we're going that's where we're going no matter what happens in between no matter how bad the storm gets between here and there he said we're getting there so guess what I can trust that I'm gonna get there I can face the storm because hey as bad as it is I know I'm gonna get there I know that we're going to land on the other side if he says we're going across we're going across and no wind and no ways can stop that. One last thing we were talking about. I mean, our, our staff meeting this morning was just a wealth of great stuff. We were talking about, that. the question came up about protective praying or secretive praying. And we're asking the question, maybe you've thought about this yourself. Have you ever thought about maybe praying in your mind because you don't want the enemy to hear what you're saying to God? And I think we kind of assume, you know, the devil can't read my thoughts. He's really not that brilliant. So if I just pray silently... Then he can't hear, and then God and I can work out what we're going to do. And then we can spring it on him, and it'll work. We might say, Father, I want to keep this between us, because if Satan gets a hold of it, he might use it. So let's just work this out. Instead, how about shouting from the mountaintop something like this, Go ahead and try to stop the will of my Father.
1: You can't do it.
0: We can completely lay out everything we know of God's plan before Satan and not worry about it because Satan can't stop it. There's nothing he can do to stop the will of God. God will accomplish everything he said he was going to accomplish, and Satan can't stop that. So who cares if he knows what the game plan is? Here, Satan, have a copy of the book of Revelation. Read up on it, buddy. This is where you're going. Then it's not pretty. And you can try to get around it. But you cannot stop the will of God. We have no strategies to hide. We need not function strategically at all. We just need to function in faith. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, "...when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, the Gospel." right? Jesus Christ is the Gospel. I, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And we're going to stop right there for tonight. I'd love to go on. I think we'll do the Bay of Pigs on Sunday morning. That's the next story there. But for tonight, one thing that just stood out of of everything that happened, these miracles that we've watched, that we've gotten to see with Jesus. And that's that all Jesus ever has to do is say the word. Just say the word, Lord. You want me to go to the other side of the sea? Say the word. I'm in the boat. You you want to do a, a miraculous work, a healing? Say the word. I'm there. You want me to wait on you? Say the word. I will wait. For the leper, all he had to say was, I'm willing, be clean. And the leper was healed. For the centurion, go. It will be done as you have believed. He didn't even say the word. He touched Peter's mother-in-law's hand. She was well. He healed the sick and cast out demons, verse 16, with a word. He even calmed the violent sea by saying, Hush! Say the word, Jesus. Say the word. And it will be done. So Father, we close for now, just thanking you for the Word, who is Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Word who has dwelled among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the Father. Father, we know the Lord came, the, the, the Law came through Moses, grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. And we praise you tonight, even in the midst of the storm that's blowing outside. We praise you and thank you that you had determined to bring us through the storm. Say the word, Father, and give us ears to hear by faith in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.